I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Benita Lee. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 16, 2022. Coming up, we speak with Hannah Lewis, author of The Mini Forest Revolution, in which she describes the Miyawaka Method, a unique approach to reforestation devised by Japanese botanist Akira Miyawaki. Begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Professor Isaac Wanasika is the department chair at the Montfort College of Business at the University of Northern Colorado. He's an expert on corporate strategy and business ethics. He spoke with me about the historic climate bill recently passed by Congress. The act earmarks $370 billion over a decade towards wind, solar, clean hydrogen, and other technologies with the goal of transitioning the United States away from fossil fuels. So first of all, thank you for joining me. Uh, Thank you for having me. As an expert on ethics and business, from your perspective, do you think that the passage of this act will spark real change? Uh, The Inflection Reduction Act presents the best opportunity to mitigate climate change. The act is intended uh, to put the U.S. on a path to 40% emission reduction by 2030. This is a big message to our Western allies. We are sending a clear message that we are back and we are ready to provide the necessary leadership in climate change. I see this as a turning point. If we continue on this trajectory, I think it gives us a fighting chance of uh, mitigating climate change. Who do you think will benefit from the climate initiatives within this act? At at the broadest level, everyone benefits. uh, But from my vantage point, certain corporations are going to benefit more so than others. Uh, specifically the solar industry, the electric car industry. Traditional car manufacturers are also going to benefit because a lot of them have invested in uh, clean uh, energy initiatives. Uh, Utilities are going to benefit as well. Research and institutions and startups that are in this space are going to benefit immensely from the funds that have been made available. There is also an allocation of funds for disadvantaged communities to mitigate climate change. Uh, These are going to be beneficiaries as well. Do you think there are any uh, industries that might not benefit from this act? Yes, the the usual suspects, the the heavy polluters in the heavy manufacturing uh, fossil fuel industry. And I think this opportunity presents them with choice if they choose to continue using legacy technologies, then uh, they are going to lose. But if they jump onto the bandwagon and uh, take advantage of the tax incentives that they have been offered, uh, they, they may also benefit. How do you anticipate this act potentially affecting you know, our infrastructure and uh, the business food chain? 
we are not going to see immediate benefits uh, because uh, a lot of these initiatives requires to deploy new technologies, invest in uh, clean energy, and have uh, behavioral change. But certainly, I think the larger players in, in the corporate world are going to benefit more because they know how to access federal funds, they know how to access uh, the tax benefits. Uh, the larger startups that are in this space are going to benefit benefit the most. My fear is that uh, the smaller businesses that don't know how to navigate through the bureaucracy and how to access new technologies may not benefit as much as they should. How do you think this might affect people who research and otherwise work in fossil fuel technology? Will they, will they be able to transition? Uh, the interesting thing is that the fossil fuel industry has also done a lot of research on clean technology on their own, uh, but they've not been able to commercialize this technology. Uh, I'm hoping that with the tax incentives, uh, they are going to change direction, change their mindset, and try to deploy technologies that are adaptable and, and more friendly to the, to the environment. But again, this depends on uh, how the economy performs. The other piece is uh, the funds that have been allocated to retooling existing auto manufacturing facilities. And this would include uh, retraining of employees with the new skill sets. I think this is a good initiative because uh, part of the challenge of adapting new technologies, the fact that you have to retrench employees that are not able to adapt or that don't have the necessary skill set. So funds have been provided in this regard. Is there anything that you, about this act in particular, that you felt optimistic about? Yes, I'm very optimistic about uh, clean energy manufacturing and transportation. I think $60 billion were allocated in that space. Uh, this would include solar panels, wind turbines, critical minerals, and batteries. These funds are going to directly benefit the industries involved. It's a very good incentive. And I think a lot of uh, companies in this space that were struggling to be sustainable are going to take advantage of uh, these facilities. I mean, how, how do you... Think this might affect Colorado in particular? Colorado should be able to really take advantage of uh, the incentives that have been offered to industry in order to adapt uh, clean energy. There are other incentives that have been offered for research. I think it's about a billion dollars for research on clean energy. There are a number of startups in Colorado that are in that space. I hope they're going to take advantage of those funds. That was Professor Isaac Wanasika, department chair at the Montfort College of Business at the University of Northern Colorado. Wanasika is an expert on corporate strategy and business ethics. He spoke with How on Earth about how the historic climate bill recently passed by Congress could help transition the United States towards a greener economy.
Climate change has exacerbated more than 200 infectious diseases and dozens of non-transmissible conditions such as poisonous snake bites and asthma. Climate hazards bring people and disease-causing organisms closer together, leading to a rise in cases. Global warming can also make some conditions more severe and affect how well people fight off infections. A team at the University of Hawaii examined more than 77,000 research papers, reports, and books for records of infectious diseases worsened by greenhouse gas emissions. They focused on 10 climate change-induced hazards, including surging temperatures, sea level rise, and droughts that have affected all documented infectious diseases. These include infections spread or triggered by bacteria, viruses, animals, fungi, and plants. The researchers discovered that climate change has aggravated 218, or 58%, of the 375 infectious diseases listed in the Global Infectious Diseases and Epidemiology Network and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's National Notifiable Disease Surveillance System. The total rose to 277 when they included non-transmissible conditions, such as asthma and poisonous snake or insect bites. The team also identified over a thousand ways in which climatic hazards have led to cases of disease. Increases in temperature and rainfall, for instance, have expanded the range of mosquitoes and contributed to outbreaks of dengue fever, chikungunya, and malaria. Heat waves draw more people to water-related activities, leading to a rise in cases of waterborne illnesses, such as gastroenteritis. Storms, sea level rise, and floods force people to move and have been implicated in outbreaks of loss of fever, cholera, and typhoid. Climate threats have also made some pathogens more virulent or boosted their transmission. For example, high temperatures increase the survival and biting rates of mosquitoes carrying West Nile. And the effects of climate change on diseases are even broader than the study reveals. For instance, changing environmental conditions are harming healthcare access, food security, and other health outcomes. This study was published in Nature Climate Change on August 8th. But stay tuned for our interview to hear a more optimistic note. The Miyawaki method is a unique approach to reforestation devised by Japanese botanist Akira Miyawaki. Hannah Lewis explains how tiny forests as small as six parking spaces grow quickly and are much more biodiverse than those planted by conventional methods. She explores the science behind why Miyawaki-style mini forests work and the myriad environmental benefits, including cooling urban heat islands, establishing wildlife corridors, building soil health, sequestering carbon, creating pollinator habitats, and more. Welcome to the show, Hannah. I'm speaking with Hannah Lewis today and her book, Mini Forest Revolution, a primer for the Miyawaki Method, is coming out shortly from Chelsea Green Press. And I'll provide links to the book, of course, in the show notes. So Hannah, let's start off by having you explain exactly what the Miyawaki method is and what your experience with it is. Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me to the show. Um, The Miyawaki method is a way to grow back the forests that um, would have been in any given place where the climate um, is suitable for a forest if there had been no development for agriculture or cities or anything. So it's trying to recreate what, what would be there Um, in the absence of human interference. To do that, Dr. Miyawaki studied ecological succession and thought about how land is colonized over time. And in places where start with bare ground, 
and you have small, small annual weeds take over and live short lives, create a lot of seeds, and then eventually they're replaced by larger vegetation that live longer. And over time, you get to very large vegetation that's shade tolerant. So it will grow in the shade of the of the taller vegetation that's grown in over time. And then it'll take over the canopy and it'll shade out everything else. And so by that point, you have kind of a stable climax forest community. So what what Milwaukee wanted to do was jump past the successional process, which can take, you know, 100 years or so and just go straight to the climax forest stage. And what's involved in the Milwaukee method is first figuring out what would be um, in that climax forest stage. And so that's what I was talking, what would be growing in any given place uh, if it hadn't been cleared for development. Um, and then you have, to, you have to prepare the ground because often you're starting with degraded land and you have to do the work that those uh, earlier successional species would have done to improve the land. They, they add organic material, they loosen it up, they um, hold some of the moisture there. And so if we're skipping over the successional process, we need to do that ourselves. So what's involved in the Milwaukee method is first preparing the ground, so decompacting it, adding, adding a lot of organic material, like 20 to 30 inches of topsoil is what he suggests, and then planting a dense mix of Climax forest species into that. And by dense, it's, it's like three plants per square yard. And you're doing a diverse mix too. And you're not planting only the overstory species, but, or the canopy species, you're also planting the understory species and the shrub layer. And so you're planting the multiple layers of a natural forest. And once you get that all in the ground, you mulch it heavily to protect the soil because the plants are really small and they're not creating any shade at the very, very beginning. And then after about three years, you have the, the plants have, have leafed out and grown and formed a, formed a bit of a canopy and cover of the soil. So they're gonna shade out any weeds and they're going to protect the soil and keep it moist. And then at that point, the forest is self-sufficient. And I wanna emphasize for our listeners, what a really clever idea this is, because as you said, that process of succession, if it's left to take place naturally, can take hundreds of years, especially if the climate um, supports really slow growth, like it does in our area here in Boulder. And um, yeah. so, so really nurturing the rapid development of a mature community is such a great idea. Um, and for our listeners that might not be familiar with this idea of succession, we see it locally after fires where the ground is burned down to basically the, the bare earth and then grasses come back and weeds and shrubs and eventually trees. But of course here, because of water limitations, that process of getting mature trees is gonna be really slow. So let's talk about the idea of identifying what the original forest is, because I think this is really a difficult one, especially in some areas where that forest is long gone. Yeah, it, it is. So, so what Milwaukee did was early in, his career, he discovered um, that the Shinto Shrine Forest in Japan, and that's where that's where he's from. That's where he developed his 
his method and did all did the majority of his work, although he did a lot of forests overseas, um, in the including in the US and also in many parts of the world, uh, Asia and tropical areas. Um, so, but in, in Japan, what he discovered early in his career was that the Shinto shrine forests are small forests that are considered sacred and they have been in the area for, um, well, thousands of years. Uh, so basically when Japan was, you know, when, when a, um, people a long time ago were forming a town, they always left a bit of forest there as a place to house the gods. So the gods would live there and, um, and nobody was to cut or, or, or harvest or touch that forest. It was, it was a place for the gods to live. And so those are remnants of what had been there earlier. So they're, they are the natural forest for the, for the land where they're growing. And they, and it was interesting to him because the other vegetation around, um, outside of those shrine forests was uh, different. It was deciduous trees, or it was pines, or it it was it was just distinct. It was, and so it was planted or secondary forest. And um, so when he when he wanted to do a, a, like a of forest planting using his method, he would survey the species that were in those sacred forests and looking at the proportions and then try to recreate that with the, with the, with the saplings. Japan is lucky that they have all of those little remnant sacred forests and not, not everywhere has that kind of resource. You know, I, I live in Minnesota and here there are um, a few little remnant patches of old growth forest. There are a lot of people who have studied local ecology in, in, in any given area. So there are vegetation maps done by scientists, and there's been a lot of great work done on what are the different types of forests and what are the species that are in them. So when you're doing a, when you're doing a mini forest using the Milwaukee method, it's really imperative to connect with, with people who are knowledgeable and have studied the local ecology because they're usually in many places there are those surveys. Yeah, I did discover that after I read your book and I started looking into local resources that there are several of those available locally and forest ecology and of course ecology in general has experienced a big resurgence in the last few decades as people have become more interested in environmental issues. So I'll put links to some of those local resources on our show notes as well. But let's talk a little bit about some of the examples. You have some lovely, lovely stories of people in different countries applying this method. Like I was really amazed by the um, application of the method in Iran. Like you, you talked about areas where there were um, forests historically, and that's a long time ago in Iran, I would guess that there were historical forests, but the, it seemed like there's a really successful project going on there. I, I had the um, pleasure of, of interviewing a man who, who is a, uh, he's a farmer. He has a small dairy farm in uh, an open plain that's just, um, yeah, in between some mountain ranges. And it's really that whole plain is dedicated to agriculture, like row crop, crop ag agriculture, input intensive, and it's a dry area. And, and so it's, the agriculture depends on irrigation. And he was concerned because water is really a key issue in Iran. 
and and it bothered him how much water was was going to these row crops the the way people are planning is just doing a small forest patch so like 200 square yards and so um he did that side and it was that size so he just basically planted a, a perimeter um, around kind of along the walls of his dairy facility. He worked with the University of Tehran to figure out what the native plant species were. And he also talked to local people in the area who, who had older people who had seen what kind of trees do grow well in the area. So he put together a mix and even in those really, really dry conditions, he did the soil improvement like you need to do bringing a lot of organic matter into that area. And then he watered, um, not excessively, but just as the forest was getting established over the first three years and it grew well and it's, and it has become independent. So, so yeah, that's a, that's a pretty cool story. You know, when these little crops could needed, needed to be watered so heavily and then grew a forest and it did not need to be watered. Right. Which is such an important point for areas like where I live, where water is a big issue. And of course, in all of the West becoming much more of an issue. So it's encouraging to think that we can plant these mini forests. And not only do they not require as much water as we might think, but then they actually hold water and contribute to increasing water tables and water availability for other plant and animal species. And of course, that's another issue that you go into some depth on is the diversity of plant and animal species that are supported in these mini forests. The water retention, I think, is really interesting because when you when you have bare ground, it tends to get compacted and hot. And so when when it rains, it just washes off. But when you have vegetation that sort of slows down the water entering the soil and the vegetation itself has improved the soil dramatically, and made it made it more spongy and porous so that when it rains into a forest the water percolates down into the soil and then and then the forest itself is holding moisture because it's because it's created kind of a canopy it's created a bit of a microclimate inside where it's cooler because of the shade because of the transpiration from the trees and it's blocking wind and heat and dryness from the outside so you so it's having good healthy native vegetation on the land is like basically putting a sponge on the ground so that when it rains it'll it'll stay on the land rather than washing off or evaporating off too quickly so in your book you have other examples of these mini forests in developing countries but also it's spreading really rapidly in the developed world as well and like you mentioned there's even examples in the u.s but i was particularly taken by the story of paris so maybe you could talk about that. I love the idea of how they're developing these cooling islands uh, along the Beltway Road that encircles that city, which is, of course, a massive city. Well, um, yeah, it was it was kind of a coming together of um, I think people were coming together. I think people everywhere are having these aha moments. Actually, we need nature. And here's a way that we can we can bring it back to our city. So I think that happened to a, a certain extent in Paris. So city had, well, this, this city was the site of the, you know, 2015 Paris, um, the Conference of Parties International Climate Conference that brought a lot of focus um, to the city on, on the issue of climate change. And the mayor was really involved. She hosted a lot of 
mayors from around the world to think about what cities could do to um, mitigate and adapt to climate change. Um, but in addition to that, the city had done a biodiversity plan. Um, they, they did a climate, a climate adaptation and a climate resilience plan. Um, so they're really thinking about it strategically and, and, Par and Paris is getting hotter like many cities are. So they've had heat waves that have been deadly. They've, they've their peak temperature a few years ago or they broke a temper temperature record. So it's a wonderful city. You know, everybody in the world thinks of Paris with such, such fondness. But if Paris is too hot, that's a pretty sad story. And so they were thinking about how do we create cooling, cooling corridors and cooling islands for people so people can move around the city safely, even when it's really hot. And that involved planting a lot more vegetation. And then, and then also this recognition of biodiversity. So while cooling islands and cooling corridors for people means putting vegetation in strategically um, as like a network, and that is also creating corridors for wildlife. And so, so one of the ways that when the, when the Milwaukee Method project was proposed by a, a local person there, it was it was received, it was sort of understood in that context. And so they, the, the beltway around Paris has a grassy embankment and it does create connectivity. So it's like, it's a circle and it connects, and then it connects to green areas on the inside and outside of that circle. So it is kind of a corridor just by virtue of it being a circle. And so they planted, they planted two mini forests on that embankment. So that's, you know, that's a big difference between just grass that has to be mowed and a, you know, a dense forest with lots of species. And I think they're planning a third one. But so that was cool how, yeah, the city was kind of ready for an idea like that when it was presented to them. Yeah. And there are so many other wonderful examples in your book. So I will refer interested listeners to your book and we'll have to leave it there because we're out of time. But thank you so much, Hannah. It was wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. It was, uh, it was wonderful to talk to you, too. That was author Hannah Lewis describing the Milwaukee Method, a unique approach to reforesting our warming world with the goal of rapidly cooling, decarbonizing, and beautifying our planet. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm currently the show's executive producer. This week's show was produced by Beth and me and engineered by Shannon Young. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Claude Debussy. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Benita Lee.